from people all around the world. Hey, by the way, I did want to mention, um, you know, we got a little undisciplined with our name tags during the summer because it got smaller and smaller and smaller. So, you know, our honorary Princeton grad, she worked hard on this. And um, let's, let's begin to use them again because we're starting to have new people and it, it obviously would help them to be able to, to remember our names and stuff. So let's begin to remember the name tags uh, next week. A little late right now. Um, I want to begin with a little audience participation. Um, it's really an impossible question. I'm going to ask you a question that's impossible. The more you think about it, the more you realize it's impossible. So I don't want you to think about it. I just want you to answer me. Okay? What is your favorite attribute of God? Answer me. Pardon me? Grace. Love. Mercy. Anyone else? Pardon me? Patience. Praise God for patience. Amen. <laughs> Any others? Infinitude. Infinitude. It's amazing, isn't it? <laughs> it's amazing. There's no other being like Him, right? No one else is, is like Him. His presence? Amen. Uh, I love all of those attributes. I love, I love them all, right? And this, this uh, year in Young Adult Bible Study, um, we're going to go through a study of the attributes of God. Um, and uh, so, I'm sold on the attributes of God. If you don't know how awesome He is, you will never live for Him like you should. But when you do know how awesome He is, it's easy to do Hebrews 11. It's easy to go, as Paul said, you know, to live as Christ, to die as gain. If you really know Him, Philippians 1.21 is like breathing, you understand. But my favorite attribute of God, I must confess, it's an attribute that's not thought of much, it's not, not talked about very much, it's His mystery. I am as mysterious. Jehovah, He is infinitely mysterious. I love this about Him. And if you thought much about it, how could you not? How could you not love the fact that our God is infinitely mysterious? I know you've heard this before. You know, ultimately, human romance cools. Why does human romance ultimately cool? It's not to say we don't love the person anymore, but the romance cools. Why does the romance cool? Anybody want to hazard a guess? Well, ultimately, you've explored this person and you've exhausted all their mystery. You still love them, but there is no mystery left. Right? In fact, there's too much. You know too much sometimes about your spouse. Uh, not really. Not really, Krista. You're right. I stand corrected. Not really. But maybe sometimes. It just depends. Um, but the relationship with Jesus... You never exhaust the mystery. You know, I know I've said this to you before. You've heard me liken Christianity to, to a romance. I love that analogy. It's the sacred romance. And it's the romance that never cools. Because we will be discovering the mystery of God forever. There'll never not be a time when we're not still discovering mystery. And that we won't be completely and utterly in awe of this great 
God. I think it is an eternal romance. You know, the human heart, it's wired to desire intimacy, beauty, and adventure, and Jesus is all of those things forever. So I love the mystery of God. Theologians, of course, have a $2 word for it. I know Serena knows the word. Some of you others may know the word. Uh, the word is inscrutable. You know the word inscrutable. It means beyond one's powers to discover, understand, or explain. He is unfathomable. You know Isaiah 55, God says, My thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. You know how Paul says it in Romans 11.33, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable His ways. I love the way the King James renders that. It says, His ways are past finding out. I love this about God. <laughs> Forever we'll be trying to understand His fullness and apprehend it and love it and worship it and treasure it and adore it forever we'll be discovering the greatness of this God. I know I've shared this with you before, but when I'm talking about this, and you're going to understand why I'm talking about the mystery of God in a few minutes, I trust. But when I was in seminary, my seminary professor, he's one of those brainiac guys, he could have made a ton of money probably in the computer industry. But we would, we would sit there and we would ask him questions that you know, the, God doesn't reveal. It's just questions that it's not revealed. So... Um, and he'd get this big smile on, my, on his face. And you, you know what he would say. I've told you this before, right? You remember what he would say? Anybody remember? Good. Nobody remembers. It's a good illustration. <laughs> he would get this big smile on his face, and we all knew what was coming. He'd say, I have no idea. Well, tell us this about God. And he'd get this big smile on his face. He says, I have no idea. Beloved, don't you love that about God? You know, Believers and, and even unbelievers will ask me to explain some, something about God. And I love to say to them, I don't know! I don't know! Is it important, Chris? <laughs> oh, it's Allison. Is it for you, Allison? Okay. Hey, don't worry about it. It happened to me one time when I was preaching, so don't worry about it. Uh, you know, for the believer, I don't know is not an acknowledgement of ignorance. It could be that. But for a biblically literate Christian, it's worship. I don't know. He's too awesome. I do not know. And after a billion eternities, I still may not know! And I love that about Him. I love the mystery of God. I love it that He is unfathomable. I love it that He's past finding out. I love that about Him. And I, I hope that you do as well. Yes, Jesus Christ is knowable. He has revealed Himself to us. He is knowable, but He is mysterious. I've told you a lot of times, but I, I can never say this enough. The Bible is not God's explanation. You know, your average unbeliever 
And, and a, even an immature believer, they think God is explaining Himself in the Bible, right? The Bible is not God's explanation. Someone tell me what it is. It's His revelation. Thank you, Mike. It's His revelation. God is not attempting to explain Himself to His creatures. He does not do that. He explains Himself to no one. He gives an account of Himself to no one. But He graciously reveals Himself as a Savior to all those who would repent and believe. You know, my favorite example in that regard is the Trinity. People always want to know, Jim, explain the Trinity. <laughs> and I always say, I can't. I don't even try. It, we're not supposed to. God doesn't explain the Trinity. God simply reveals the Trinity. And I think we bring God down when we try to explain things He doesn't explain. So I don't tread on that ground. I don't try to explain what God hasn't explained. I'll tell an unbeliever, I say, I have no idea. Isn't He awesome? You know? I can't explain Him. He's an awesome God. His ways are not my ways. And His ways are past finding out. I love this about the Lord. So, let me ask you this. Just a couple of quick questions. Was the Bible written by God or by man? What's the Bible say? The Bible says yes. Is Jesus God or is Jesus man? What, what is the biblical answer? Yes. Is God one or is God three? What does the Bible say? Yes. Does God choose man or does man choose God? What does the Bible say? Yes. That's why I'm talking about mystery as we talk about faith. Is it only the gift of God? Or must men own it and exercise it? That's the point tonight. It's what we've been talking about in James chapter 2. God says, faith that only hears and faith that only talks. He says, what use is that? He says, it's no good at all. He says, it's dead. Then He says, it's like demon faith. And then He says, it's useless. This is what God is saying about faith. that's never owned and never employed in the world. And when I saw in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, that Peter's talking about a faith that we've received from God. Okay, He's given us this faith. We know what Ephesians 2.8 says. God's given us this faith. What are we going to do with it? Are we simply going to go to church with it? I know that much of Christendom has devolved into that. Oh, I just go to church with my faith. <laughs> I think we debunked that. I think the Lord debunked that the last two times we were together. So where does true faith come from? We've talked about the last several weeks. It comes from God, Ephesians 2.8. We were saved through faith, which is the gift of God. What does saving faith do? It spills out into the life. It is visible. Everyone around you will know you're a Christian because it's coming out. 
It comes out of your mouth. It comes off your fingers. It comes off your feet as you serve others and you serve the body. And what does God say about a faith that has no works? I just uh, enumerated that for you. God says it is useless. So it seemed, it seemed to me that between James chapter 2 and 2 Peter chapter 1, that Ephesians, uh, pardon me, that Philippians chapter 2 would be the perfect bridge. And that's why we're in Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Let me just read the text to you again. So then, my beloved, just, if you've all, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So why does Paul say, so then? As I explained earlier, we, in verses 5-11, to 11, Paul's talking about the, the condescension of Jesus, how He became a man, He took on flesh, He was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And he says, you should be like this, is what he's saying. And what's the net result of such a great Savior? That's what Paul means by so then. And notice in verse 12, Paul says, you don't just obey because I'm present, because I'm there. You obey all the more in my absence. Now why? Why would they obey all the more in Paul's absence? It's what we've been talking about in James 2 because the, the faith is coming out. The faith comes out, right? The faith comes out. Really, for a, a true born-again believer, you, really all, you can't hold it in. I mean, I know there are dull times. We have dull times spiritually. But if God is at work in your heart and your life and your mind, it just it's coming out. And if you're in the Word of God and you're in the body of Christ and you're being exhorted, and, and you, you can't hold it in. You can't hold it in. And this is what Paul is saying. He said, not, you not only uh, live your faith in my presence, you do it in my absence. So, so why does the believer obey the Lord? Why do we do it? Because we're, we're dutiful church people. We ought to and we should. That's the, the, the deepest and most profound reason that we obey Christ, right? Don't ever say yes to that question. No. We do it because we love Him, right? And if you don't love Him, you haven't met Him because to meet Him is to love Him. Jesus said, if you love Me, you will. The faith will spill out is basically what He says. He says, you'll keep My commandments. If you love Me, the faith will spill out in your life. The faith that My Father's given you, as Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. It's a faith we've received. The faith we've received from God. If it's really a God-given faith, it will spill out. It's what we've been talking about in James chapter 2. And then the Holy Spirit inspires Paul to write something that gets a lot of Protestants in a knot. Okay? He says, work out your salvation with fear and Trembling. Your average, even slightly biblically literate evangelical will say, now wait, Paul. What are you saying? Are you saying I have to work for my salvation? 
We understand from Scripture, and I, I made this crystal clear the last two times we've been together, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Let there be no misunderstanding. That's how a man is saved. But if we are saved like that, the works come, right? This is the point of James chapter 2. If we have a faith we've received from God, if it's a God-given faith, if we are God-begotten, if we are born again, if we receive that kind of faith, I'm not talking about just brain-dead, heart-dead, going-to-church faith. I'm talking about, I love this Christ. To live is Christ, to die is gain. I understand Philippians 1.21. I get Philippians 1.21. I'm not scared of Philippians 1.21. I understand it. I get it. I want to live like that. That's what we're talking about here. We are not saved by works. We are saved by grace. But if we are indeed saved by grace, the works will flow through our lives. This is the Word of God. You know, the Holy Spirit tells us that we must rightly divide the Word of truth, 2 Timothy 2.15. And the church is full of denominations that, that simply are not rightly dividing the Word. We know there's much error in what is called Christendom today from Eastern Orthodox, Catholic, and even many uh, expressions of Protestantism. I love how the NAS says, uh, or translates 2 Timothy 2.15. We handle accurately the Word of God. doesn't mean... I'm not saying that, that this church possesses all truth, but I will say this. We do sweat over the text and we seek to be correct. If we are shown that we are not correct from the text, we will change our message. It's our only goal is to have integrity with the Word of God. We have no denominational agenda here. I'm not trying to protect anybody's agenda or even my own agenda. All I'm trying to do is exposit the Word of God faithfully and accurately. And you have permission always to come challenge me. If I say something you can't see on the page, you come and challenge me. You always have that permission. And we'll talk about it. And we'll try to understand it together. But you guys know Satan has sought to pervert every single truth in the Bible. There's always a ditch on every, every truth proposition that God has put forth. There's a ditch on the left and a ditch on the right. You know that, right? There's a theological ditch on the left and a theological ditch on the right. Such has been the historical case regarding salvation and sanctification. What we're talking about here in Philippians 2, 12, and 13. Some have erroneously said that in salvation and sanctification, man is the determining factor. He is the driving force. That is one ditch. Others have erroneously said that in salvation and sanctification, man is passive. That, of course, is the other ditch. If we only read verse 12, it appears that Paul's in the first ditch. If we only read verse 13, it appears he's in the second ditch. But if we actually read the verses together, we see that Paul is not in the ditch, as many are in modern Christendom. He's rightly dividing. He's not only writing the Word of God and revealing the Word of God, it's been rightly divided. And he's speaking truth 
to us. So, is salvation and sanctification all of God or must man be active in it? The Bible says yes. It is all of God. But every Christian must be active in it. It is not passive. That is an error. I love John MacArthur says it exquisitely. He says this, this faith we've received, this born-again thing we've received, MacArthur says, it is all God and it is all us. It is all God and if God's in our life, it will impact and involve all of us. I think that is well said. If we are born again, if that miraculous supernatural work of God has happened in us, it will impact every part of our being. We can see this truth uh, in many, many places in the New, the New Testament and the Old Testament. Let me just... You don't need to turn there, but in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 58, Solomon is dedicating the temple. Listen to his words. He prays, May the Lord our God incline our hearts to Himself to walk in all His ways and to keep His commandments. Now, if Solomon in the second theological ditch, is man passive in this? Are the Jews going to be passive in this? Listen to what he says a few verses later, verse 61. He says to the people, Let your heart therefore be wholly devoted to the Lord our God to walk in His statutes and to keep His commandments. So Solomon in the, the first theological ditch is, is man-determinative. Solomon is in the right place. He is in neither ditch. He has rightly divided the Word. It's always all of God inclining our hearts to Himself. And it's always, it always involves all of us as we wholly devote ourselves to the Lord. This is biblical faith. Again, it's an echo of what we were talking about in James chapter 2. And it, it's, it's, uh, it's a preface to what we're going to see in, in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. You have received a faith. You have received a faith. You didn't conjure it up, if we rightly understand the Bible. We didn't conjure it up. I don't have faith because I'm smarter than you. I don't have faith because I, I figured it out rationally and logically. Of course, there's rationality and, and logic to biblical faith. But something supernatural happened, right? Something supernatural happened. It's what Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3. We've been born again. It was all God. It was all God. <laughs> but now that God's in my life, He's called me to surrender all my talents, all my skills, all my faculties, my, my life, my body, my blood belongs to Him. Is sanctification something God is doing? Is, is salvation and sanctification something God is doing? Or is it something we're doing? Yes. Yes. You know, I, there's a lot of tension here. There can be, you, people can feel this tension. God's sovereignty and salvation, man's responsibility. People always feel this tension. 
And in our two and a half pounds of gray matter, I think there is some tension. And we don't, uh, we can't fully reconcile it. But as I like to say, are you going to put your two and a half pounds of gray matter up against infinite mind? <laughs> God says, this is how I do business. I'm a sovereign God. I do supernatural things in the hearts of my people. And my people respond. This is really biblical faith, beloved. This is the faith, as Peter's going to say, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, this is the faith that true believers have received. It's a faith that turns our lives upside down. Amen? As this, this as a, those who said in Acts that these, these men, these disciples, are turning, they're turning the world upside down. And of course, that's what we're doing. We're turning the world upside down as we share the truth one, one life at a time, as we, as we uh, share the truth with those around us. Listen to God. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work it out, He says. You're supposed to work it out. How? As He works it in. This is, the, this is the way we need to understand it, beloved. We work out what God works in. This is so crucial. If you, if you struggle with this, let me know. I'll, but you know what? If we talk long enough, we're going to come up to that place where I'm going to have to stand here and I'm going to have to smile like my theology professor and I'm going to have to say, I don't know, isn't it awesome? <laughs> that God is sovereign in salvation. And that it involves all of us as well. I think it's a beautiful thing. The Christian must work out what God has worked in. The Christian is never passive in salvation or sanctification. That is a non-biblical theological ditch that we need to avoid. Christianity is, is not passive you've been in this church very long, you understand that it is an oxymoron. Lukewarm Christianity is an oxymoron. It's just simply an oxymoron. If we actually have read our Bibles. The Christian is called and commanded to work out what God has worked in. This is not salvation by works. This is salvation by grace through faith being worked out in our lives. James chapter 2. Again, we talked a lot about the last two times we've been together about this song that Sarah Groves sings. She says, something's changed in me, right? Something's changed in me. It's broken wide open and it's all spilled out. This is biblical Christianity. Using no biblical terms. <laughs> something's changed in me. And it's broken wide open into my life. And it has all spilled out. I'm just going to say it again so we make sure we don't pass over it. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Listen. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of your pastor. Right? It's the gift of your church. Right? It's the gift you get from the sacraments. Right? No, it's from God. This is the Word of God. It's the gift of God. It's not the result of your... Filthy rag works because then you would have something to boast about. And no true believer has anything to boast about. If you think you have something to boast about in your Christianity, you've not understood your Christianity. 
We have nothing to boast about. It's all sovereign grace, beloved. It's all sovereign grace. All we can do is simply rejoice and give thanks. Again, MacArthur says of Philippians 2.12, he says, it is not saying we must work for or work at or work up our salvation. The text is saying we simply work it out. I love this. We simply work it out. As I told you, many people, uh, many false teachers in Christendom, they try to turn James 2 on its head. Many try to turn Philippians 2, 12 and 13 on its head and turn it into works. It's not about works. It's not about works. Listen to what we're going to hear in 2 Peter 1, 3-7 in a couple of weeks, no doubt. Peter writes, Seeing that God's divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness, apply all diligence in your faith, moral excellence, self-control, perseverance, godliness, kindness, and love. Do you understand? We must work out what God is working in. It's what the text says. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it's God who is at work in you. God gets all the glory. <laughs> he gets all the glory. He's arranged it thusly. He gets all the glory. Praise God. He deserves all the glory. Because I know if He didn't come after me, I certainly wouldn't be going after Him. I remember what it was like before I was converted. I know what it was all about. It was all about Jim. Some of you probably had the same experience. It was all about Jim, man. It wasn't even, I, I wouldn't have given you five cents for Jesus Christ. He was just some historical icon. But when the supernatural thing happens, <laughs> as Sarah Grove sings, something's changed, man. Something's changed. And it all spills out. God has done a God thing within us. It's the born-again thing. And then we're supposed to go do the disciple thing. You understand that, right? You're supposed to be a disciple. If you're not a disciple, you're most likely not a Christian. A disciple follows. A disciple obeys, albeit imperfectly. God doesn't call anyone to be a church member. He never calls anyone in the New Testament to be a church member. He doesn't say, come and be a church member. He says, come and be my disciple and follow me. That's what a real Christian is. There'll be a lot of church members in hell, beloved. Because they never truly came into relationship with Him. They never truly knew Him. They never truly loved Him. And they certainly never obeyed Him. Again, with the caveat, none of us do it perfectly or even very well sometimes. So, Philippians 2, 12 and 13, to me it's very, very clear. We work out what God has worked in. There are three dimensions to salvation. We were saved at some point, right? We are being saved as God continues to conform us into the image of Jesus and lastly, we will be saved ultimately as we see Him and become like Him. I love how Paul says it in Romans 13.11. He says, For now your salvation is nearer than when you first believed. Don't you love it? It is nearer than when you first believed. 
So does God hold the, the believer secure in His hand by His sovereign power or must the Christian persevere working out what God has worked in? Someone tell me what the biblical answer is. Yes! It's a sovereign work of God in your life. And He calls you to be a disciple. Yes. Yes. That's what the Bible says. There are myriad verses I could share. I'll just share two. The words of Jesus. You'll recognize, I love this, this text. John 10, 28 and 29. Jesus says, My Father has given My sheep to Me and no one can snatch them out of My hand or My Father's hand. God's sovereignty. Jesus also says, The one who endures to the end shall be saved. Matthew 24, 13. Man's responsibility. Yes. Even if there's tension in your mind. You know, uh, through the years I've had men who want to reject either one side of this argument or the other. And, uh, you know, I always challenge them. Well, are you willing to humbly submit to what God's Word says? Even if you don't fully grasp it and understand it? Even if you can't reconcile it 100% in your own two and a half pounds of gray matter? I'm always amazed that people want to take this two and a half pounds <laughs> of gray matter and challenge God or deny His Word. I'm always amazed. Beloved, the arrogance of that. Dust. <laughs> Dust. Challenging I am. And challenging the thing that I am clearly says in His Word. So let me ask you, is God electing us, as we talked about in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, is God electing us, holding us, sanctifying us, and keeping us? The Bible says yes. And are we called to repent, believe, place our faith in Jesus, and persevere to the end to be saved? The Bible says yes. The Bible is clear. The Bible is clear. While God is doing His sovereign work in our hearts and lives, Verse 13, He is calling us to radically believe, trust, and obey Him. Verse 12 of Philippians 2. I was studying Revelation some time ago and I noticed nine times in the book of Revelation God says we must persevere. We must persevere. I'm just going to go through these quickly. Maybe I won't. I don't want to go too long. Nine times. God says you must... The overcomer, he will eat of the tree of life. I'm going to do it quick. Uh, he will not be hurt by the second death. He will receive hidden manna. Uh, he will given, be given authority over nations. He will receive the morning star. He will not have his name erased in the book of life. He will be a pillar in the temple of God. Jesus will grant for him to sit, on, sit with him on his throne the overcomer shall inherit the kingdom prepared for God's children. These are breathtaking promises. It's what Paul's talking about in Philippians chapter 12. I love how Paul says it in Philippians 1.6, God will complete the good work He's begun in you. This is the sovereignty of God. I love how Paul says it in Philippians 3.12. Paul says, I press on in order that I may lay hold of that for which I have been laid hold of. It's man's responsibility. Beloved, this is biblical faith. It's a sovereign act of God and it's your responsibility. You say, Jim, how do I fully reconcile that? I don't know. Worship that. Worship that, beloved. Worship that. 
What's wrong with simply worshiping? I'm convinced that we try to explain more than God teaches many, many times. And I think we hurt the gospel when we do. Let the mystery stand. You say, well, it hurts my argument in the world. And the critic, the critic won't stand for mystery. Well, that's his problem. That's the critic's problem. Let the mystery stand. Our God is mysterious. We own it. I'm not afraid to admit my God's mysterious. I'm not afraid to admit I can't fully explain all that He's revealed. I simply say it. Beloved, I think this is important for us. And let me just say a word about, he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. We understand what the Bible says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. There is great wisdom in having a proper, balanced, healthy fear of God. Of course, we should possess a reverential awe toward God. There are these stunning promises. You may remember we talked about them in 1 Peter chapter 1 where Peter says, conduct yourselves in fear. You remember, you remember, does anyone remember all the promises we looked at that God gives to, to those who would fear Him from Scripture? Does anybody remember? Okay, I'm going to give you a quick list. Okay. And if you want the detail on this, come ask me. I don't have time to give you all, this, all the Scripture references. Those who would fear the Lord will be God's friend. God will watch over you. God will encamp around you. You will have no true want. The Lord will pity you. The Lord will take pleasure in you. The fear of the Lord leads to life and to satisfaction. Don't you love that? The love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting to those who fear Him. Don't ever be afraid of the Bible when it says, when it talks about walking in the fear of the Lord. It's an awesome promise. It's full of awe. We don't need to, you know, some people back away from that. They think, oh, that's a negative. It's not a negative. It is a positive. It is a positive. And of course, we know, back to the verse here, we know the kind of fear that a child has when he disobeys his loving parent who must discipline that child. We're in that kind of relationship with the Lord. You guys know Hebrews 12, 7, and 8. God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Those without discipline are illegitimate children. And they are not sons. There's another kind of fear here too that I want to mention. It's the fear of the Lord. It's that healthy fear of the Lord. But it's also a healthy fear of sin. If you know yourself you know you can fall into sin. If you don't think you can fall into sin, you don't fully know yourself. I'll still remember my, my, my mentor in seminary. I'll never forget what he said to me. I, I mean, yeah, I had him in a high place, right? He taught me about 80% of what I know, everything I know. And he was an esteemed minister, a long history. He said, I could send him. and it'd all be gone. He had a healthy fear. Beloved, this is, what, this is what Paul is saying to us. Fear the Lord and fear your own sin nature. 
we all know we can fear. If we just read our Bibles, we know we can fear greatly. Or pardon me, sin greatly. We know that we can. So part of that fear is that we, we, don't, we, we fear to offend our Father. We, we don't want to grieve the Spirit. We don't want to lose our joy. We don't want to lose our testimony. We don't want to negate effective ministry because of sin in our lives. We should have fear. And we should be careful to avoid temptation. So we have a healthy fear of our Father's discipline and a healthy fear of the power of sin and its consequences in our life. I believe this is what the Lord is saying to us in this verse. So the Holy Spirit, I think tonight, as a prelude, as a preface to Second Peter, I think He's keeping us out of theological ditches tonight. We're going to revisit this truth as we go into Second Peter. Um, it's a faith that we've received. You know, it's true. I think maybe you know. <laughs> Although, it seems kind of like we're finding God. Really, God has come to us. God has found us. And I love that about biblical salvation. I love that. Is salvation and sanctification all of God? Yes. Does salvation and sanctification involve all of man? Yes. Some seem to like to struggle with this tension. Some call it a paradox. I don't struggle with it. I worship. I worship that God will not leave me to myself. He will complete the good work He's begun. Philippians chapter 1. I worship and praise God. Left to myself, I'm sure I would be shipwrecked by the end of the week. God is at work in my life. So, just a couple of quick questions for you. Are you proactively working out what God has worked in? Or, have, or has your Christianity simply devolved into you know, church attendance? So let me ask you, what is God calling you to do tonight in your life about this truth? What is God calling you to do? What habit does God want you to leave here tonight? What attitude does God want you to change? What sin does He want you to forsake? What wrong does He want you to make right? What relationship does He want you to mend? What obedience is He exhorting you to do? What ministry does He want you to do in this body? What act of radical faith is He calling you to do? Beloved, this is always the warp and woof or the texture of true Christianity. God is always calling us to a deeper, loftier, more sacrificial place. It's just simply working out what God is working in. In closing, I'll just, say, just quote Paul here. Paul, Paul articulates this so well in Philippians chapter 3. He says, man, I know Jesus, but I want to know Him more. Right? And he says, so I press on in order that I may lay hold of that for which I have been laid hold of. Do you understand it? Do you hear it? The sovereignty of God and the desire of man. 
He says, I press on in order that I may, that I may lay hold of it, that I may lay hold of that for which I have been laid hold of by Christ Jesus. I love, I love that verse. I love that verse. Paul says, I lay hold of that which I was laid hold of. Beloved, this is biblical faith. If you have any questions, please, always. I welcome your questions. You can ask me. You can email me. Uh, it's not a problem. I would invite you to read 2 Peter. It's a short book. We're going to go verse by verse through the book uh, in the coming months. And uh, uh, largely, it talks about false teaching. I think it's a timely study for us. We know that there are many false teachers in the world today calling themselves Christians. We understand that. So, I think it's a timely message for us. And uh, so if you want to... If you want to read that on your own, that'd be great. And we will begin, Lord willing, unless He pushes me off onto something else. I think I'm done with this, but I never know for sure. He's the boss. If He says, do something else, that's what we do. But apart from that, we will begin Second Peter next week. Let's pray together. Lord, thank You that You are past finding out. This is not a problem for us. This is infinite joy for us. We will spend a billion eternities investigating Your Godness. I love Your mystery, Father. And Father, when we come against scriptural truth, it's hard to understand. Some of us have been taught wrongly. Some of us want to think maybe, I don't know, maybe too much like a human being. And we just won't simply bow before the clear assertions of Your Word. Father, I pray that we would have humility with Your Word. I, pr I pray that we would tremble before its power and its glory and its splendor and its majesty. These great truths that You have saved us and You have called us to be Your disciples. Lord, I pray that each one in this room, each of us would, would take that to heart that we would own it and we would love it and we would live it for the glory of Jesus, for the edification of the saints and for the salvation of the lost. We would be Your disciples. We would work out what You have worked in. And we give all praise, glory, and honor to the name of Jesus. Amen.